0: Uh, Deborah Eisenberg, the short story writer, is interviewed in the Parish Review and someone says to her, the interviewer says to her, how do your stories begin, what do you begin with? She says, well, I never begin with anything. And I completely understand what she's saying, which is don't sit there and think, I shall now begin, I have this, but just write your way in.
1: Hello and welcome to Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a project of the Open Book at 201 Ponsonby Road, the world's most beautiful second-hand bookshop. Tonight we have with us Paula Morris, who is a renowned author, novelist, short fiction writer, essayist, teacher, um, mover and shaker, weaver. Have I left anything else
0: out? I've been learning weaving, so I am still a beginner.
1: Beginner weaver, you know, you can't be perfect at everything all at once, True. right? Welcome, Paula, it's such a pleasure to have you here.
0: Kia ora, Anna, thank you.
1: Uh, so we're going to start with you reading us something from False River, which I read a few weeks ago, and Paula was out of the country, and, and obviously very busy, but I just kept sending her little texts and emails going, oh, I really love the book, it's so great, I love the book! So if you haven't got a copy and read it yet, you definitely should, and actually you can get it off the Open Book website still, so... That's pretty cool.
0: Is there something in particular you'd like me to read from? Do you have a favourite thing that you want me to read from? You can.
1: Oh, well, no, I couldn't possibly usurp your authorial... Oh, I don't really care. It's all gold.
0: It's all <laughs> gold.
1: It's all gold. You can cut this bit out. No, um, no, no, I'm not taking responsibility for that.
0: Okay, why don't I read a little bit from Inheritance, the sassy. Perfect. All I right. did love
1: that Someone about your mother mm. keeping talking. <laughs> How did all you survive?
0: Right. So I'm going to read an extract from an essay called Inheritance. And it's about my mother, and it's about going to a witch burning in Denmark. The two things are unrelated. Not long before I travelled to Denmark, I conducted a half-hearted tidy-up of my bag collection. I'd given lots away over the years to friends, relations, charity shops, but I still have many more than I need. A snakeskin bag of my mother's, bought in Australia in the 80s, beaded bags from the 70s, threadbare evening bags from decades earlier, too kete my grandmother made, too delicate now to use. One bag of my mother's I decided to toss rather than give away. Its black leather was molting, peeling like withered skin. The label read Prada, but nothing about it was real. I bought it for my mother in Shanghai in 2005 because she wanted a fake designer bag. These days, I'm more particular about intellectual property, but in 2005, I let a teenage girl lead me away from the sprawling market of knockoffs down various litter strewn alleys. We entered a grey apartment building, walking through a primitive kitchen where an old woman was cooking, and into what was probably the flat's living room and bedroom. Transformed into an impromptu handbag showroom. It felt strange, dark, and illegal, and I regretted going. But the young women running the place were not going to let me leave without buying something. I spent about half an hour there, though it felt like much longer at the time. The knockoff Prada bag I spotted quickly and knew that my mother would like it. But nothing had a price, everything had to be negotiated. My starting price was US $10, and theirs was $100. The calculator went back and forth. There was a lot of sighing and shaking of heads. At one point, we all grew fatigued and stood around in silence, eating mandarin oranges. When the girls refused to go lower than $50, I decided it was time to escape into the street. I managed to find a way out, different from the kitchen route, though once in the alley I had no idea where I was. One of the girls chased me into the street and shouted, Let me have face! So back in I went and agreed to a price that was just above my final offer, exhausted by the whole ordeal. The girls were smiling now and very complimentary. I was, they said, a very good negotiator.
1: It brings back a lot of memories for me of living in Shanghai. As well, although by the time I got to Shanghai, I'd been in China for about eight months, and I was very hardened to these interactions. But at first, one goes, I don't know what to do with this.
0: (laughs) It was ridiculous. I was there to um, do research for my second novel, Hibiscus Coast, which is partly set in Shanghai. So I shouldn't really have been shopping.
1: But when in Shanghai, really, there's a lot on offer, isn't there? So... After I read False River itself, I went and did a little bit of noodling around the internet and I found the introduction that Tom, um, your husband, who perhaps he would make a guest appearance for a moment. Say hi. Hello. Hi. <laughs> That's Tom. He's sitting across from us. Tom Moody, Tom Moody. Say. Tom Moody, your handsome husband uh, and number one fan, wrote an introduction for the launch of False River. And he said that it contains writing from across the period of your writing life. And he sort of referred to a period of 17 years, which I was quite intrigued by. So can you tell us a bit about the book and how you put it together and how you decided that this was the moment that it was these things were ready to be published?
0: Because it is an unusual mix, the book, I know. It is fiction and creative nonfiction, And some of the pieces in the middle of the collection were originally published as short stories when they were, in fact, essays. So So they were false news fiction. They were were fake fiction. So, And the book kind of has a theme that emerged, really, about lies and secret histories. So that was the thing that tied it all together. Some things in it I began many years ago. For example, the essay on Billy the Kid, I wrote back in 2004 the original version of it for Metro magazine after a trip to New Mexico, but I substantially rewrote and revised it. Some things, like the Laura Ingalls Wilder essay called Rocky Ridge, well, I've been doing research into her since the 90s, when I visited all the different home sites uh, all around America, and for a while was a Hoover scholar studying at the Herbert Hoover archives in Iowa, West Branch, Iowa. So a lot of it represents, I suppose, old obsessions, old interests, Uh, things that I gathered along the way, my testimony of our evacuation from Hurricane Katrina in 2005 through to things that I've written very recently. You know, um, most of the short stories are written quite recently. But it has come together as a sort of an odd but hopefully interesting collection for people to read.
1: And what made you think it was time to put these things into the world in this package
0: Some people say to me, oh, you're not really a short story writer, are you? Which is very odd, because I started off in short stories. Those were the very first things I wrote, the first things I got published. And many of the first ones I I wrote were collected in Forbidden Cities, my first uh, short story collection, which came out in 2008. But I do write a lot of, when I say short pieces, I mean, you know, five or six thousand words. They're not really short, but... I really love the form. I really love the form of a a piece around that length between five and 10,000 words where you can do all sorts of interesting things. Um, and I also really enjoy writing personal essays now or creative nonfiction generally. I did realise I often go in search of grave sites. So there's quite a few grave sites in the book, one about Robert Johnson's grave, one about Billy the Kid's grave. That's just always been one of my interests, you know, since I was a child.
1: That's a very final full stop, isn't it, (laughs) on the twists of narrative?
0: Well, especially because in both cases it's not really clear if those are actual graves or not, if the bodies really lie in them. Billy the Kid, there's lots of theories that, you know, he escaped and it's it's an empty grave or it's got someone else in it. But I don't know that answers your question. I suppose... It felt like it was a good time to start bringing some pieces together that I wanted to be out in the world together juxtaposed together rather than, you know, things that had been published all over the place and in different journals or magazines or or had started life somewhere and I wanted to be able to give them more life. And the Laura Ingalls Wilder piece, I mean, I should have written a book at some point, but I was too lazy.
1: So tell me a little bit, this is off the script of questions I gave you, but tell me a little bit about where this love Of Laura Ingalls' wild little fascination were kind of flowered from for you?
0: Childhood. Childhood reading, uh, being at Chattertooth South Library, reading her books. I absolutely loved her as a child. I'm not one of the brigade now that has turned on her for being racist. It's quite easy to turn on people from the past to say, you didn't think of things or speak about things the way we do now. I actually don't think she was as racist towards Native American people as many of her generation. She was born in the 1880s. Um, In fact, I think there was something that she understood of the appeal of the prairies and a way of life that was much more wild and not related to farming. And I think she also understood the terrible loss that many Native Americans experienced and they were forced to move on or or change the way they lived.
1: Because there is one scene, isn't there, where the Indians are walking past the house on the prairie and there's a little baby being carried, you know, and there's actually feels like a lot of emotion in that scene. I mean, they are afraid as to what's going to happen to them as the settler family, but she's also actually seeing them out there as a family moving on or a group moving on through the landscape as well in a way that's quite human, I think. Well,
0: also that very scene you're mentioning is a really good example of lies and secret history because that second book of the series, Little House on the Prairie, which is set in Kansas, which was then Indian Territory, was the most wholly imagined of the books because she'd actually been very small when she was there and barely remembered anything. So it's the most sort of dramatically constructed. But that memory she had of seeing uh, the Native Americans passing through being moved out and her saying that she wanted a papoose, she wanted the baby, she wanted her father to get it, that was actually one of her genuine memories from the time. She was just quite a lot smaller than she, than she uh, was portrayed in the book. And that book, which many people think is the best in the series, is also the most fictional.
1: And that's so interesting, isn't
0: it? Extremely interesting.
1: Which brings me to my next question. I mean, I you know, as I already said at the beginning of this podcast, I just really loved this book and I loved the range and the jokes and the grime and the sorrow and all of the things that were in there and that incredible essay on Laurel Ingalls Wilder, who obviously my obsession does not match yours, but you know, I have very intense childhood relationship with those books as well, other series too. But I wondered about the process and the experience of writing fiction versus writing Any say, and you've said that some pieces have been published as both, and I guess that's marketing in some sense, which is one thing. But the sitting down at the desk and saying, "I've got something to say," what is that, and what is it? Is it a, a what set of truths or lies or mixture am I selecting today? What What do you feel is different for you there?
0: That's a very good question. I mean, stories. Stories are stories and I, I gather up the pieces of them here and there and then a few things coalesce and they click into place and you think, yes, this can work with this and this other thing. So I'm in Estonia at a hotel and I'm also thinking about fairy tales and I see a painting in the lobby and the pieces of a, a story start clicking together. But essays are quite different because... You can't really just grab things from here and there. They have to have some sort of narrative coherence in in terms of what you've seen and experienced. That essay I read from Inheritance, it is about going to Skane in the, the very north of Denmark to where we spent quite a lot of time, actually, partly because the new novel I'm working on is partly set in Denmark and all the characters end up in Skane at the very end. But it was hard not to be there and think about my mother for various reasons. She'd been alive the last time we were there, and she was dead by the the second time we went. And then also about this issue of shopping, because Skane's got the most lovely little shops. It's very expensive, just a warning. And I couldn't but help think of her because she loves shops so much. And she also would have really enjoyed the witch burning, by the way, but what's not to like about that? I was in a a strange or strange-to-me place I'm going to see a very strange ritual, Midsummer Celebration. By the way, it's not particularly anti-women. It's more probably anti-German, to be honest.
1: Some Germans are women, but there's... There is a crossover. Yeah. No,
0: it's just a sort of a made-up thing. It's made up in the 20th century, really. It's, it's, it has no roots in medieval hostility to women or anything. But I was there to work on a novel where all the characters are made up, obviously, and then I was thinking about my mother, who has now become a ghost of sorts, you know, and was certainly a ghost to me there.
1: The fate of all mothers eventually. <laughs> <I think.
0: laughs> to haunt us.
1: So, so those
0: things all came together, and it's very much an essay set in a place and time, but obviously with excursions into handbag buying in Shanghai and other places like that, because my mother was a big handbag buyer. But I think the demands of, of non-fiction... It's to tell a, a true story, but that has some kind of narrative shape to it, obviously. It's not just, and then this happened, and then this happened. It's, it's not,
1: curation and form goes into it, doesn't it? It
0: can't just be an anecdote or, as I say to my students, a blog post. Blog post, well, and then this happened, and it really annoyed me, and the end. It's It's supposed to be something that people who don't know you can read and find interest in it, rather than just... Where something bad happened to me or I felt a bit sad or I enjoyed this, it's also hard, I think, because you, the eye of the of the piece, are a persona as well. you're a person. Um, you have to interrogate yourself. Everyone who appears in a piece of creative nonfiction is a character to the reader. They're also a real person. so how do you make them three-dimensional on the page? How do you? understand and portray yourself how do you know what's at stake for you in the story it requires self-scrutiny and investigation and it's not always very comfortable in fact it's often quite uncomfortable I mean I I think I write in that essay about trying to ride a bike again in Denmark I was just an absolute calamity on a bike because I always was as a child you don't by the way listeners you don't always remember how to ride a bike you forget.
1: If you're bad enough to start with, your memory.
0: <laughs> I was terrible when I was young and I was worse when I was an adult. I was covered in bruises and cuts and it was very distressing, actually. Yeah. But, and this
1: is a metaphor for writing an essay. Well, you, you have to, you can't present yourself
0: as as a very good bike rider when you're absolutely hopeless. You have to confront your hopelessness and your... And your behaviour and your personality and your character, it's all there on the page. So stories, we can hide, you know. We can put things of ourselves here and there if we if we like to. Um, you know, we can have our characters stay at hotels we've stayed at and look at paintings we've looked at ourselves and stick our thoughts into their heads if you want. There's a rant in the story The Third Snow where a very drunk character who's sort of old and a buffoon has a meltdown in the street in Rome about uh, a window display where the artist uh, Leonardo was referred to as da Vinci. And he has this complete rant about it. And it's word for word what I said when looking in a similar window. So I've just taken my own, you know, obsession with people not calling Leonardo da Vinci and stuck it in the, the mouth of a ridiculous old man. And you can have that kind of fun and disguise in fiction but you can't really disguise things in creative nonfiction.
1: Or someone will come and tell you off? What will happen? Well, you'll be telling a lie,
0: I suppose. And lies are fine in fiction, you know, it's all about secrets and lies and hiding and imagining and inventing and disguising. But in creative nonfiction, if you've lied to the reader, you've somehow broken the pact of the form, I think. So I really have no time for creative nonfiction writers who say, well, it's fine, I just conflated it all and said it all happened that one day. It's like, well, then you're writing fiction, so just say it. That's what, I mean, some writers I really like, like Carl my Canalscore, uh, well, my boyfriend, I think, we can pretty much fairly say.
1: I think he's my boyfriend. I well, spent some time in a green room with him once.
0: But I interviewed him on the stage this year, and he also came to my class, so I think we're pretty much going out. But anyway, sorry, a, dig- a digression and maybe too much information. But with him, he's writing about his own life, but he, they're called novels because he wants the liberty to change things and to write things that he doesn't remember and to fill in the details. He doesn't pretend they're memoir. And I think that's a really important distinction. The people who say, oh, it doesn't matter, it's like, well, just write fiction. Just write it's fiction. As
1: soon as you go over the line, you're saying that's where you end up, right? So there's, there's a bright line test. And if you're on one side of it, you're doing your best to reflect what happened with curation and shaping. And if you're on the other side of it, you're in the world of fiction.
0: Which is a good world to be in. It's a very enjoyable one. But don't think you can have it both ways. Every art form has its constraints, as you know, as a poet. Every art form has constraints and you have to work with them and do your best job within those constraints.
1: And it fascinates me. How people actually do their work. So I'm interested by you know people who aren't writers as well. What do you actually do all day? When you say you you know I'm do fascinated
0: this? by people's jobs. That's
1: right. Like what what happens? So when you're having a writing day, if you have such things, <laughs> uh-huh, when you when you've got five minutes, or you know, what is the process that you are going through to get from the germ of I've seen a painting and I've had a thought and I want to write a story to here's the thing on the page that's finished.
0: Oh, I just write anything. And often I've scribbled something in a notebook, so I'll I'll type that up. Or I'll have a line in my head, or just whatever. I won't think. I won't think at all, actually. I'm not much of one for thinking. Uh, Deborah Eisenberg, the short story writer, is interviewed in the Parish Review. And someone says to her, the interviewer says to her, how do your stories begin? What do you begin with? She says, well, I never begin with anything. And I completely understand what she's saying, which is don't sit there and think. I shall now begin, I have this, but just write your way in. And I usually have a few things floating around somewhere in my head that I hope will come together, but it's in the act of writing that I find them really, not not by thinking it through and writing it down. Now, it's different, of course, if I'm writing a YA novel that's a mystery plot, I'm going to spend a lot of time plotting it out beforehand. But if I'm writing a short story like The Third Snow, various elements in The Third Snow. It's one of my favourite stories in the book. Um, it's about a, a guy who's was born in Latvia, came to England as a child, and uh, his mother has died. Now his father has died. He's married an Englishwoman. His name is something that everyone can mispronounce enough to make it sound English. So he's kind of lost his identity. He visits his wife in Rome where she's teaching for the summer, and stays with the aforementioned awful couple in their apartment. Now, the apartment's based on one that our friends, or friends of my sisters, rented one, somewhere we managed to infiltrate it, of course, in our usual sponging way. So I had that to play with. Martin's job is as a toxicologist, and he's particularly involved with titanium dioxide. And this is my cousin's husband's job. And I, like you, am fascinated by people's jobs, so I've asked him loads of questions. He's always going over to Brussels... To make presentations because titanium dioxide in everything, it's on everything, it's on our donuts, it's the white sprinkles you see on things, it's the the white that goes into paint, it's everything. So, I've I learned so much about that job. I wanted to give it to someone, and then you know you just you can't and then obviously he's Latvian because I've had two residencies in Latvia. I love Latvia. I've learned a lot about it. And when my husband and I, Tom Moody and I were in. Your greatest fan? Well, if he is my greatest fan, I'm in trouble. We went to a restaurant in Tallinn, in Estonia, and the waiter, the very young waiter, took a great fancy to us, but particularly to Tom. And he, only human. Yeah, well, really, he wrote him a little message afterwards. You, sir, are an inspiration. I think he thought Tom was really old and just sort of, you know, amazing for his age. But, but he told us um, a little. A little adage, I suppose, a little uh, saying his grandmother had because we were talking about the snow. And he said, well, my grandmother said the third snow is the one that lasts. And as soon as he said that, I thought, well, that's the title for a story right there, the third snow. So that's probably the thing I had first. I forget the titles first. And then, you know, a year or two goes by, you've gathered a few more things. They're all rolling around in there. And I thought Martin's Latvian, that's something his grandmother said to him, and off we go, to Rome.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that title first is a little bit of the constraint you were, it's something to bounce off, isn't it? Or to form the rest of the story against, you know, it gives you guidance as to where you're going. Yeah. Because I'm not trying to be wishy-washy
0: about this, but I'm kind of like a poet. No, I'll rephrase that, because we all know that's not true. I like the poet's approach that the title is sort of a window into the poem, that it's very important. It's not just, you know, here's another one and here's another one, but it's something that that has its own weight. And I spend quite a lot of time thinking, no, not thinking, I never really think, but, you know. Intuiting. Yeah, daydreaming the titles for for my stories and pieces. The title is often the first thing I have.
1: I remember Kate Camp once saying, uh, when you've written a poem and you don't know what the title should be, sometimes just take the first line and <laughs> move it up and bold it, and then there you go—you've got the title. And it's great advice; that often works really well.
0: It will be harder with a novel. <laughs>
1: well, that's right. I mean, I, my personal feeling is that everything is harder with a novel, and I don't really understand how it's possible to write them. So I'm in awe because uh, if you can't see it all on one page, or at least a double spread, mm. how? Could how can you keep track of everything that's going on? So you need need
0: notes and index cards and post-its and just things rolling around your head constantly. V.S. Naipaul, who's just died, as you know, said, I mean, he said many silly things, but he said that he had to take sleeping pills while he was at work on a novel. Otherwise he would lie awake all night going through everything in his head. Well, I mean, I often lie awake at, at night as well, but usually I'm just playing Scrabble on my phone. But I... I do understand how it can end up taking up a huge amount of your brain space. So, to go back to your earlier question about writing when you're doing lots of other things, often I don't have time to actually write. And all these people who say, you must sit down every day and write 500 words, that's what writers do. Well, that's what Graham Greene did. But, you know, everyone is different. And for me, I just try to grab time when I'm walking or time when I'm between things just to play out scenes in my head or you know if this happens what next and what do people look like and where are they driving and what are they saying and just to use up well to make use of the little time I do have in between everyone else's work and everybody else's demands to um to have my novel going on like a movie so that when I do have time Uh, it's already rolling.
1: Mm, Replay the reel yeah, that's fascinating You have been listening to part one of a two part series with Paula Morris. This has been Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a project of the Open Book, the world's most beautiful second hand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road in Auckland If you're in Auckland, come down and visit us. If you're not in Auckland, have a look at our website. You can see our recent poetry competition and our My Book Bag service